Well, you can join me in your Bibles at Luke chapter 7. Luke 7 this morning. For the next few weeks, we'll be just doing some, uh, going to some different places in Scripture, just as the Lord leads. Luke chapter 7 this morning. The uh, inaugural 9 o'clock service is, uh, is great, better than I hoped for. It's great. You guys are early risers. Appreciate that. Glad you're here. Uh, when we did this 15 years ago and we went to two services for the first time, uh, the, the first part, the, the first few months of that were the, kind of the hardest part, especially for the earlier service. Uh, so if it feels a little slim in here, uh, realize the Lord will add and uh, that means you got to sing all the louder, okay? So, and amen all the louder as well. Appreciate that. So, we're grateful, though, to be able to make room for others. Hopefully you had no seat anxiety this morning. You know, there weren't people putting scarves out on the seats and saving seven seats in a row and things like that. So, hopefully you found a seat just fine. All right. Luke chapter 7 this morning. All of us, will at times experience doubt and discouragement. We expect life to go a certain way, and when it doesn't, we can find ourselves wondering and questioning and doubting. Doubting God. Doubting His ways. Doubting His plans. Doubting His goodness. Maybe doubting even His existence at points. We know the promises of Scripture that tell us that Christ will never leave us or forsake us, but sometimes we feel forsaken. The difficulties and disappointments of life press in, and in the deepest recesses of our minds, we begin to think, is this really true? Is what I believe really true? Does God really exist? Is Jesus Christ really the answer? Is He really God's Son and really the Savior of the world? Christians sometimes doubt. Sometimes the harsh realities of being fallen people living in a fallen world seems to overshadow the promises of God's Word. Seems to overshadow His past faithfulness even. And we begin to wonder, we begin to question, and we begin to doubt. So what do we do when doubts arise? Can I really be a Christian and still wrestle with doubts? Our text this morning provides us with some helpful answers to these questions and assures us that despite our very imperfect faith, despite our doubts, we have a perfect Savior in Jesus. So let's look at Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. I'll read through verse 28. John the Baptist is featured here, and he is in prison. John chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John, John the Baptist, reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, 
John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he, Jesus, cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women there is no one greater than John. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is the word of God. Let's give thanks to God for it. Our God and Father, we thank you that you have left us your word, your revelation. You've revealed yourself in a myriad of ways through nature, revealing your power and your creative acts. You've revealed yourself to us in Scripture, and you revealed us revealed yourself to us through your Son Jesus Christ supremely. It is Jesus that we wish to see today. Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his power, and in all of his gentle humility. Show us our Savior today through your word, we pray, by your spirit, in Christ's name, amen. How does Jesus deal with our doubts? How does he respond? This morning I want us to see four lessons for a faltering faith. Four lessons for a faltering faith. Lessons that remind us that we are not saved by either the quality or the quantity of our faith, but by the perfection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're saved not either by the quantity or the quality of our faith, but by the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. The first lesson for a faltering faith that I want us to see is that our faith is incomplete and sometimes faltering. As Christians, our faith is incomplete. It's imperfect. It's lacking in many ways. And it is sometimes faltering. Luke tells us here that the disciples of John, John the Baptist, 
reported back to him in prison about all these things. Now, what are all these things that is being referred to? It refers to the miracles of chapter 7, 1 through 17. And you can go through and read that and see these mighty miracles that the Lord was performing. Jesus healing a man on his deathbed and healing him from a distance. He didn't even have to be there. And Jesus healed him. And Jesus taking notice of a mother grieving over the death of her only son, halting the funeral procession and then raising her only son from the dead. With Jesus healing the gravely ill and raising the dead, it's no surprise then to read in verse 17 that the report about Jesus went all around Judea and the surrounding areas. News travels fast, especially news like this. Healing the sick, raising the dead. This report concerning Jesus also made its way to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was, of course, Jesus' relative. Perhaps second cousins on their mother's sides. And John was chosen by God to be the forerunner to Messiah. He was born to parents who were childless and well past their childbearing days. And so, like Jesus, his birth was miraculous. Not in the exact same way, obviously. But a miraculous birth nonetheless. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 1. Just keep your place in Luke 7. Look at Luke 1. An angel appears to Zacharias who's a priest. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition about having a child has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go forth as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was John the Baptist's mission statement from before he was ever born. He would be the forerunner. He would be the preparer. He would be the herald going ahead of the king. John the Baptist seemed to be enthusiastic about Jesus from the very beginning and even from before the beginning, like in utero. If you skip down a few verses, look at Luke chapter 1, verse 41. It says, Mary greeted Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? Just to get you all oriented here. Mary greeted Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, that is John the Baptist, in utero, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So from the very beginning, John was ecstatic about Jesus even from the womb. John carried on a ministry of preparation for the Messiah. 
a ministry of preaching repentance and calling people to prepare their hearts for the coming of Messiah, to prepare themselves by being baptized in a baptism of repentance, a baptism in water. Look with me at Luke 3. Luke chapter 3. Verses 16 through 18. John, John the Baptist again, answered and said to them all, As for me, he's preaching to the crowds here, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one who is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. This was John's job, and he was fulfilling it wonderfully. Ministry seemed to be going well. There were crowds coming out to hear John and to be baptized by him. Then look with me at the very next verse, verse 19 of chapter 3. Luke 3, 19. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by John the Baptist because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. John got an audience before Herod. Herod Antipas, the local Roman ruler of the region. Now Herod had divorced his own wife so that he could pursue a marriage with his sister-in-law, Herodias. She was the wife of his half-brother, Herod Philip. So it's a whole mess, right? A soap opera of adultery, unbiblical divorce, and unbiblical marriage. John brought this issue up when he was given the opportunity to have an audience with Herod. John is a man of courage. Talk about speaking truth to power. It's exactly what John did. Mark 6, 18 says this, that John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And as a result of his confrontational preaching before Herod, John ended up being unjustly thrown into prison. According to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, John was incarcerated in a fortress east of the Dead Sea, way down south in the wilderness. And there in that prison, thanks to regular visits from his own disciples, John was able to keep up with the latest developments of Jesus' ministry. While in prison, John sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus a question. Are you the expected one, or should we be looking for someone else? Do we have a case here of mistaken identity? Are you, or are you not, the Messiah, Jesus? Notice that the question is repeated twice in our text, underscoring its importance and urgency. Can you hear the disappointment in that question? Can you hear the doubt in that question? 
Can you put yourself in John's shoes and imagine what he must have been thinking and feeling in that prison cell? John asks if Jesus is really the expected one. The expected one. At this time in Israel, there was a great sense of expectation. That the time of the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel was at hand. That God would be sending the long ago promised Messiah to them. And that Messiah would set all things right. In fact, the level of messianic expectation was so heightened that some people wondered if John wasn't the Messiah. Perhaps he's the one. In Luke 3, 15 and 16, we read it just a moment ago. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation, the crowds were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. And John answered and said to them, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not, un- I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John is saying clearly, I am not the Messiah, but I am the one who is the forerunner to the Messiah. He is greater than me. His ministry will be greater than me. The effects of his ministry will be greater than the effects of my ministry. It's clearly pointing to Jesus. Jesus seemed to be this expected one. After all, Jesus had been powerfully attested as the Son of God at his baptism, which was conducted by John the Baptist. Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. And John, therefore, had a front row seat for the witnessing the Spirit of God who descended from heaven like a dove and came to rest upon Jesus. John the Baptist, in that same moment, heard from heaven the voice of God, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then, of course, there was Jesus' powerful teaching and the authenticating miracles that he performed all over the place. And yet, despite all of this, there remain some very troubling realities for John. While Jesus is out traveling from village to village, John is sitting confined in his prison cell. John had been faithful to preach God's message of coming judgment for sin. But where had it gotten him? He had faithfully pointed to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But now he was being forced to live like an animal in a cage. And where was Jesus in all of this? With the coming of Jesus, with the coming of Messiah, was to come the end of all injustice? Where was the justice for John? John was experiencing very real suffering, very real persecution. And as a result, he was experiencing some very real discouragement and disappointment and even disillusionment. 
If with Jesus the kingdom of God has arrived from John's perspective, it was a kingdom that must have seen, seemed rather weak and anemic. All of this led John the Baptist to ask the question, so are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? Jesus, things are not going very well here. I'm the forerunner, and I can't forerun very well from behind these bars. You were supposed to come and make all things right. Punish the wicked and reward the faithful. And yet here I sit, and this isn't right. You came to set the captives free, I thought. But here I am, in bonds. Can you relate to John's question? Jesus has come, but the world seems to operate indifferently to His coming. All things in the world seem to just go on in all of their wickedness, in all of their rebellion, in all of the corruption. Christians suffer. Christians are sometimes persecuted while the wicked prosper. We have so many questions and so few answers oftentimes. And so we're perhaps at times tempted to ask along with John, so Jesus, are you really the answer to all of this or should we be looking for someone else or something else? Our faith gets tested at times. And we are sometimes weak in faith, discouraged, disappointed, and perhaps even sometimes feeling a bit disillusioned. Such is the nature of our as yet imperfect faith. We believe. For sure, we believe in Jesus, and yet, and yet, pockets of uncertainty and unbelief remain. We trust, but not completely. We believe, but not perfectly. Despite our new life in Christ, our hearts remain a mixture of faith and unbelief. It takes one phone call, one email, one text message to upend our worlds, and suddenly we're questioning everything we've ever believed. Such is the nature of our as-yet-imperfect faith. And therefore, so often we cry out to the Lord, Lord, I believe Help my unbelief. Or we cry out with the apostles, Lord, increase our faith. It's healthy to acknowledge this. It's healthy for us all to breathe a collective sigh of relief knowing that none of us has perfect, unwavering faith. We are not a perfect people. 
with perfect lives and perfect children and perfect attitudes and perfect faith. And if you have perfect faith, then we're not worthy of you. That's a joke. One day when Jesus returns, he will finally perfect our faith, making it complete and whole and unwavering. Faith will give way to sight. But until that day, we are a complex mix of bold faith and debilitating disbelief. And there should be some level of comfort in knowing that this is a reality for Christians, and it was a reality even for the likes of John the Baptist. While you're at it, you can put all the other apostles in there too. Peter being chief among them. But we shouldn't be content to remain where we are in this mix of belief and unbelief. We shouldn't be content to wallow in questions and doubts. We need to move on from doubt. And that brings us to our next lesson. The next lesson for a faltering faith. The revelation of Jesus Christ is sufficient to strengthen our faith. The revelation of Jesus Christ is sufficient to strengthen our faith. Verse 21. Verse 21 here says that at this very same time, that is during this visit of the two, the delegation of two that had been sent from John the Baptist to ask Jesus this question, at this very same time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases and afflictions. Diseases is a mere, more general term for illnesses of many kinds. Afflictions refers to more serious and chronic painful conditions. In addition to healing people of their illnesses and diseases, it says that Jesus cast out demons and he gave sight to many who were blind. In light of this active and authoritative healing ministry, Jesus told the two disciples in verse 22 to go back to John and tell him what you have seen with your eyes and heard with your own ears. And then Jesus says this, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. See, in the Old Testament, it pictured the coming of God's kingdom and the reign of God's king to be an era of curse reversal. A period of great healing, of rolling back the effects of sin and the fall. The curse, as the light of the kingdom of God pressed into the realities of this present darkness. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, which Jesus quotes here, says this, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah, or the desert. Jesus here in verse 22 quotes partially from Isaiah 35.5, partially from 61.1, Isaiah 61.1, and then alludes to Isaiah 26.19. Clearly, pointing to himself as the fulfillment of these messianic promises. And their eyewitness testimony, these 
witnesses sent from John, their eyewitness testimony of Jesus' miraculous activity would serve as a great confirmation and encouragement for John. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, revealed his divine authority and power, authority and power which served to authenticate Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. And that's precisely what Jesus is saying here. These observable evidences would serve as proof of Jesus' claims and serve to increase the faith of Jesus' followers. Just as Jesus' demonstration of power and authority was to have an encouraging effect upon the faith of John, even so now, the record of Jesus' life and ministry should increase and encourage our faith in moments of discouragement, disappointment, and disbelief. God has revealed Himself in His Word, and within that Word, He has revealed Himself supremely in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. This written revelation concerning Christ should increase our faith. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, the Word of Christ. As Paul said, the life of Jesus Christ was not lived out in a corner, some dark corner somewhere, as he said in Acts 26, 26. But in full view of all to see and verify. The events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were seen by hundreds of eyewitnesses. Over 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ alone many of whom were still alive when the Gospels and the Epistles were written. So these eyewitnesses could be followed up with. Their testimony could be heard and verified and validated or disproven, if that were the case. If the things written about Jesus were false, then there were plenty of people who could step forward and expose the falsehood. But rather, the apostles appeal to these eyewitnesses and what these eyewitnesses know to be true. The scriptures, as the revelation of Jesus Christ, are trustworthy and are intended to increase our faith. Even more than being an eyewitness, as great as that is, the scriptures have the added power of being ministered to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. They have an added power. Listen to what Peter himself, an eyewitness to Jesus' life, crucifixion, and resurrection, has to say about the value of the testimony we have in the Bible. He says this in 2 Peter 1, verse 16 through 21. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We didn't make this up. We saw it with our own eyes. And we merely conveyed what we saw. For when He received, Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Of course, He's talking there about the experience they had on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. 
Peter was there. He was an eyewitness to it. Where he heard from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He says, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a light lamp shining in a dark place. He says, even more certain than my eyewitness account of the Mount of Transfiguration, even more certain than that is the sure word of God. Because he goes on to say, but no, this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. This is God's revelation to us from Himself. It is trustworthy. And it builds our faith. In times of disillusionment and discouragement, the best thing that we can do is go back to the Word. When we're being tossed and to and fro by billows of doubt, the best thing that we can do is anchor ourselves to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ and remind ourselves of what's really true. The Word of God, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is sufficient to strengthen our faltering faith. Third lesson. Those who have saving faith are blessed. Those who have saving faith are blessed. Jesus next says in verse 23, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now that puts the matter somewhat negatively. Let me put it positively. To say the same thing positively would be to say, blessed is he who believes on me. Blessed is he who entrusts their soul to my care. Blessed is he who is not tripped up or takes offense by me. Blessed is he who does not find objections about Jesus that lead us away from him and therefore away from forgiveness of sin and salvation that only he can give. Some take offense at Jesus' claim to be God. Some take offense at Jesus' love for the worst of sinners. Some take offense at Jesus' demand that we take up our cross and follow him. Some take offense at the continuing difficulties of life even after making a profession of faith. And these offenses lead many away from Jesus and the salvation He alone has secured. But for those who are not thus offended, those who are not tripped up, but who persist in their belief on Jesus and entrust the care of their souls to Him, these people are blessed Blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessed with the blessings of the Beatitudes from Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. person who isn't tripped up 
The person who isn't offended is a person who is blessed. However imperfect your faith may be, and it is imperfect, if it is true saving faith, then count yourself blessed and encourage your weary soul with the truth of our blessings in Christ. Do a true accounting of the way things truly are. That you are now a child of God. That all of your sins have been forgiven. That heaven is your new home. That you're no longer a citizen of this world, but you are a pilgrim, a stranger, an alien. You're just passing through. You're looking for a better country, a better city, whose builder and maker is God. Encourage yourself and strengthen your faith with the knowledge of your blessings in Christ. Final lesson this morning before we share in the Lord's table together. And that is this. Jesus is patient, gracious, and gentle with our as yet imperfect faith. After John's messengers had departed, Jesus turned to the crowds and spoke concerning John. What did you go out to the desert to see? He asked the crowds who had been out to see John the Baptist before his imprisonment. What did you go out to see? Did you go to see a reed blowing in the wind? Did you take the field trip out to the wilderness to observe the flora and the fauna? That's not what you went out to see. You went out to see a spectacle. You didn't go out to see a a gentle breeze blowing in the reeds. You went out to see a powerful prophet. Did you go out expecting to see a man dressed in fancy clothes? Those who dress in fancy clothes are found in royal palaces, not in the wilderness. You didn't go out to the wilderness and expect to see a man in a top hat and tails. It's a good thing you didn't go out there to see any of those things because that's not what John was. In fact, Matthew 3, 4 says, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. He's like a mountain man. He's like a hippie. In his appearance. What did you go out to see? If you didn't go out to see the flora and the stylish celebrity, you went out to see a prophet. And I tell you, Jesus says, that John was no ordinary prophet. And then in verse 27, Jesus quotes from Malachi 3.1. John was the forerunner to the Messiah. He was a, yes, he was a prophet. He was in line with all the Old Testament prophets. He was the last prophet. But more than any of that, he was the forerunner to the Messiah. The special herald who would go before the Lord and say, make ready the way of the Lord. John is the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, John is the greatest of men, Jesus says, period. Verse 28. No one born of women greater than John. 
pretty high praise. In fact, the praise couldn't be higher, could it? John is the greatest man who's ever lived. And by that, we believe that Jesus was excluding himself. Clearly, John understood that. He said, I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. Well, there's no one greater than John. High praise for the man who's just sent a delegation to ask Jesus a question like this. So are you the expected one or should we be looking for someone else? There's a cynicism there. There's doubt. There's uncertainty. And though understandable, this question of John's was not John's greatest moment. (laughs) And yet look at this gracious and patient and gentle response of Jesus in the face of John's disbelief, discouragement, and doubt. Jesus praises John and says, no one is greater than John. Jesus answers doubt with gentle assurance for those who are his own. Aren't you grateful for that? Jesus doesn't scold John. He doesn't say, John, you know better than that. You were there. You heard the voice from heaven. What are you talking about, John? Come on, suck it up. Yeah, life is hard. It's going to get worse. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He says, there's no one greater than this man, John. That's in keeping with who Jesus is. Jesus, who said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'm not going to scold you. You're tired, you're beaten down, you're discouraged, you got doubts. Come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Because I'm gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. To the doubting, to the discouraged, Jesus says, come. Come and find rest. Come to me and find rest for your souls. Psalm 103.14 says that God is mindful that we are but dust. Just a bunch of dust figures here this morning, right? We're just a bunch of piles of dust. God knows our frame. He knows our weaknesses. He knows that we are prone to doubt and prone to wander. The last thing I want you to notice is what Jesus says at the very end of verse 28. Luke 7, 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And with that, you and I all just got bunched in to the realities of the kingdom of God. As great as John the Baptist is, the greatest of all those born of women, 
the least person in the kingdom is greater still. What does that mean? It means that John represented the greatest of the old era. The culmination, the climax, if you will, of all the prophets. They were all leading to this point when a new era would be ushered in. The era of Messiah. The era of messianic fulfillment. And in that era of announcement, of anticipation, there was no one greater than John. But with the new era of fulfillment in Jesus Christ brings with it even greater heights and greater honor than John ever experienced. Even for those who are the least in this new era, this new kingdom. What an affirmation. What assurance for us all. All of us who are Christians. That even though we may have only a mustard seed sized faith, we are still in a privileged position of greatness in the kingdom. A position that's greater than John's was. Unbelievable grace. Grace upon grace. It means that the person who is a genuine Christian who lacks the least amount of faith of all Christians who've ever lived is still in a position greater than John the Baptist who is the greatest man who's ever lived. Such is the glory and the grace and the mystery of the kingdom of God. We enjoy this privileged position of greatness in the kingdom, not because of the greatness of our faith, but because of the greatness of the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we say, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, we believe. Dissuade us of our doubts that our faith may be firmly fixed upon you. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. For you, O oh Lord, are wholly trustworthy. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your gentle kindness to us, your loving compassion, your mercy and humility, that you respond to us in the midst of discouragement and doubt, not with a word of scorn or ridicule or chastisement, but with words of comfort, with words of forgiveness, with words of mercy and patience. Lord, we're so grateful that that's true of you because we know what's true of us. Our doubts are often greater than our faith. Forgive us, Lord. Help us anchor ourselves to the truth of your word and the truth of Jesus Christ, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his burial, and his victorious resurrection on the third day, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and his promise to come back soon. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for the promises in the gospel that are ours through faith 
even mustard-sized faith in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.